Hi, and welcome to NANCAST. I'm Jill, your host. Nurses in newborn nurseries and neonatal intensive care units are instrumental in educating parents about reducing the risk of SIDS. Nurse participation is acknowledged and encouraged in the current policy statement on SIDS risk reduction put forth by the American Academy of Pediatrics. How can we, as NICU nurses, be educated on preventing SIDS amongst our population in our units? The National Association of Neonatal Nurses released their Newborn Safe Sleep Guidelines, the only clinical practice guidelines that addresses the challenges of and provides recommendations on implementing safe sleep practices in the hospital setting for children between birth and one year of age. We are excited to have NAN's current president, Gail Bagwell, as a guest today to share her expertise in all things safe sleep. Gail is a perinatal clinical nurse specialist who has spent the majority of her nursing career in neonatal nursing. She currently does outreach to all the referring OB neonatal units in the Nationwide Children's Hospital Neonatal Network referring area and is a clinical instructor of practice at the Ohio State University College of Neonatal Nurse Practitioner Program. Gail began her hospital safe sleep committee in 2012 and been actively involved in the many transitions the committee has experienced in the past nine years, as well as been active in the local and state level in Ohio in the past in regards to safe sleep initiatives. She has been an active NAN member for over 30 years, participating in task force, writing and editing publications, with the most recent being the 2019 NAN Safe Sleep Guidelines. She served four years on the board of directors before becoming the president-elect in 2019 and is currently the president of NAN. Let's get right into it. Hi, Gail. Thank you so much for joining us today. A major part of our role as NICU nurses is parent education, and we are very instrumental in educating the parents about safe sleep practices. But in order to effectively provide this information to families, we need to understand the whys. Can you tell us more about SIDS and the new term we're hearing, sudden unexplained infant death? Yeah, I'd love to, Jill, and thank you for having me. So um, SIDS has always been sort of an umbrella term that was used in the past for any time a baby died unexpectedly at home um, in that first year of life. Many times people just said, well, it's a SIDS death. And what we have found is that SIDS is actually very rare. Um, SIDS is a diagnosis of exclusion. So when a thorough medical review of the medical history has occurred, a postmortem exam has occurred, as well as a death scene investigation. So mo- most county um, coroners are now going in and, you know, having somebody go in and looking at where the baby died. Um, so after all that is done and they find no cause of death, then it's usually classified as a SIDS death. So the newer term, sudden unexpected infant deaths, is a term that is used to um, describe all deaths of infants that are um, in the first year of life. And SIDS is one of many of those. So um, the big one that seems to actually have the largest amount of um, babies actually dying from is something called accidental suffocation and strangulation. Um, And that's what actually happens to most of our babies. And in the past, they were all um, termed to be SIDS deaths. 
Um, SIDS tells you means that I can't prevent it. We're not really sure what causes SIDS deaths. There are some hypotheses out there. But um, most deaths now occurring under the sewage is the accidental strangulation and suffocation where babies are actually getting wedged between the parent and another piece of furniture or between two parents, um, between, you know, hopefully not between bed rails anymore because of the um, Consumer Protection Safety Commission's um, regulations, making sure that babies can't get their heads between bed rails. But there's still people who use grandma's cradle um, and it can still occur. So it's it's multiple things that make up a sewage and SIDS is just one of those specific deaths. And then there's always going to be those cases also where we don't know what caused it, and then they'll just term it as an undercaused death. And then last, that's getting more um, recognition is our sudden unexpected postnatal collapses that we're seeing in the hospitals and our um, OB units. And as a NICU nurse, you might be called to an OB unit where a mother was doing skin to skin with her baby. And all of a sudden, there's a code because the baby got wedged between the mom and the baby or the, fell out of the bed because the mom fell asleep. So they all fall under that SUIDS umbrella term now. That's really interesting because I always thought that SIDS and um, sudden inexpl- unexplained infant death were one and the same. And they were terms that be, could, could be used interchangeable. So, you know, thank you for bringing those differences to light. And it would be very helpful as a NICU nurse when explaining this to parents. And families. Yeah, and I think it's really important that we understand the difference between a suet and a SIDS death because SIDS deaths, we don't know what causes them. Um, and since we don't truly know what causes them, they can't be preventable. But other types of suets, and remember, SIDS is a type of suet, are preventable, especially your accidental strangulation and suffocation deaths where the mom took the baby to the bed and the baby died in bed or they were on the couch um, and the baby got wedged between the parent and the couch um, sofa, the backside of the sofa. So it's really important that we all understand the differences, what's preventable, what's not preventable, and making sure our parents understand that in order to prevent those accidental suffocation strangulations, we need to practice safe sleep. And that makes sense because we, as the nurses, we always try to teach these parents things, right? You know, discharge begins at admission, right? So we try to tell the parents like, you know, little tips as they uh, go through their NICU journey, you know, yes, I have your baby on their belly here, but at home you won't be doing this. You know, yes, we can prop your baby up on a boppy for a little bit because we're watching them, but you wouldn't want to do this at home. So these are all the things that we can explain to the parents because we're you know, given this knowledge from you about preventable um, unexplained infant death, so the sewage that you talked about. Right. And it's really important, as you said, that you, as a NICU nurse, you discuss with the parents what we do in the NICU is not always a safe thing to do at home. And one of the big ones is skin-to-skin care. And I know in our small baby unit with the little mini 24-weekers that they will have moms doing skin-to-skin for hours on a time at a time and that the um, they let them fall asleep with them, which is perfect because that baby needs that care. But as that baby gets older and closer to discharge, we have to stop that habit because they're not going to have a monitor and somebody watching them at home and it becomes dangerous. Yeah. And that, and like you said, that's something that needs to start, you know, we're, we're doing this now. 
we're allowing this to happen, but, you know, down the road when we get closer to home that, you know, unfortunately we can't let you snuggle this long and have your baby fall asleep. But, you know, we need to set those ground ground rules for them, you know, ahead of time. So they're not being thrown with this information and especially preemie moms. Cause I, I feel, you know, when they're in the, um, postpartum units, a lot of the nurses do some education with the parents, but their baby's not going home with them, you know, within the next couple of days, it, it could be months. Correct. So all of that information that they're telling the parents about safe sleep, you know, they're going to forget that by the time it's ready for their baby to be graduated from the NICU and, and to go home. So I think we do do a little bit of a disservice trying to tell these parents in the postpartum period, right after delivery, all this education um, and expect them to remember that when they're stressed out because their poor baby is in the NICU, how are they going to comprehend that and, and remember that too? Correct. And when we all, we all know that when you're stressed, that you hear then less than 10% of what is being told to you. We're spending a lot of time educating these parents and families on these deaths, but how common are it? How, how common is it? So how often do we see these kind of deaths? Well, it's, it's a little bit of a tricky question because um, studies in the past all looked at SIDS deaths. And after the AAP started their back to sleep program in the early 90s, our causes of death dropped dramatically. But now that we're looking more at sewage, um, it gets a little bit more complicated. But in 2017, there, um, according to the CDC, there, there was about 1,400 infants that died of SIDS in the United States and an additional 3,600 that actually died from a sewage, which is more of your accidental strangulation and suffocation. So we know that the majority of our, these deaths in the first year of life is more regarding sleep positioning, sleep location, and not an unexplained cause. So that really makes it all that more important for us to be able to educate parents on ways that they can prevent causes of sewage. Um, yeah. And, and infant mortality, your SIDS sewage type deaths are one of the leading causes at, in that first year of life. So, you know, in that newborn period, it's more prematurity. Um, but for kids that were um, are between the newborn period and one year of age, it is going to be more your Sid Suits type death. And the other thing that's important to remember is the disparity between Caucasian deaths, um, infants dying from this, and our um, black and brown babies dying from this. It's much more increased. The black um, infants have like twice to two and a half times the increased incidence of dying from um, SIDS and SUIDS. We're just going to use them interchangeably during this talk. Um, and for our, our babies that are like of Native American, it's up to three to three and a half times higher. So there actually is a huge disparity um, for our kids. So it's really important to make sure that we not only that we talk to all parents about this and finding out why they want to sleep with their babies, I think is an important thing to um, talk because otherwise we can't help them figure out other ways of doing it. Um, And it's much more common, though it's getting more common in the white population because moms are working, um, they're seeing, and that they actually want to be closer to their babies at night. Um, and then a lot of times for our um, babies of color, sometimes it's a safety issue, you know, keeping them near them so that they know that the baby will be safe. So events of sewage can be prevented if we decrease 
risk factors. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has developed um, safe sleep recommendations. Could you discuss some of the recommendations that they're making for preventative measures? Yeah, I'd love to, Jill. Um, So the AAP, as you said, has recommendations, and they actually started these recommendations in 1992. And every about five years or so, they will update them. And the most recent update was in 2016. And at that time, what they um, saying is all babies, when they're put down to sleep, should be placed on their backs um, for all sleep. So whether it's a nap or nighttime sleep, all babies belong on their backs to sleep. You know, at one time they used to say they could be on their back or they could be on their side. And what they found out when babies were on their side, they fell over onto their bellies and then bad things happened. So no side sleeping anymore, just on your back for all your sleeps. Um, They also recommend that we have nothing in the crib but the baby. So no soft blankets, no soft toys. You know, babies don't play with toys. Even at one year of age, they are not really purposely playing with those stuffed animals. You know, we as adults love them and we think they're cute. And we as adults think that we need a pillow. And so I've seen people put pillows in their baby's beds because if I sleep with a pillow, my baby needs a pillow and babies do not need pillows. Um, So they need to be on a firm surface with a tight fitting sheet with no extraneous blankets or toys in the bed with the baby. Um, The big thing is because babies are being put on their back to sleep is that we need to make sure we have supervised tummy time with our babies. Um, so that is when you are awake and the baby is awake, you put them on the belt, on their tummies and you get down on the floor and you play with them. That helps them develop those neck and shoulder muscles um, that they need in order to crawl. They also, AAPE also recommends not to bed share or to co-sleep. And that includes co-sleeping of tw- twins and triplets that they each should have their own separate um, sleep surface. Um, and that we should not be bed sharing with parents, other adults, um, or even making sure animals stay out of the bed. Um, a big contributing factor, not a big, but it is a contributing factor for um, SIDS, um, for these sleep-related deaths, is babies getting overheated. So the recommendation is a baby just has on one additional layer of clothing when sleeping then we as adults would. So we would have a pair of pajamas on and a blanket. So babies would have their onesie pajamas on and then put a sleep sack on them. Um, Things like mom not smoking in the house or during pregnancy have been shown to make an effect. A positive thing that moms can do is to breastfeed their babies because there's a correlation with the fact that if a mom is breastfeeding, there's a decreased chance that that baby um, will die of a sleep-related death. There are no home monitoring devices or commercial devices out there, even though they have great commercials and great salespeople that tell you this will prevent it. There is no proof that any commercial device out there will actually reduce or eliminate um, the risk of sleep-related deaths. Um, so I always tell parents, don't waste your money on um, buying those things that would alarm if the baby's not breathing or a whole, that home monitor that would alarm if the baby's not breathing. Um, they also recommend that um, we should be... Um, keeping our babies in the same room with us um, 
in the, at least for the first six months to one year of life. That that has shown that by keeping the baby in the same room, separate sleep surfaces, but the same room, actually ha- decreases the incidence of sleep-related deaths. They think could part of it could be the fact that the mother will alert to that baby if it starts having some difficulty. The mom hears and she wakes up. Um, pacifier at sleep time. So I know with breastfeeding, a lot of times people don't want to offer a pacifier initially. So waiting for breastfed babies to establish breastfeeding before doing this. But studies have shown that if you give a baby a pacifier at the time that they go down for sleep at night or even during a nap, that that decreases their um, chance of um, dying from a sleep-related death. They don't know why that works, but the studies have shown that there is a correlation between having a pacifier and having decreased risk of deaths. Um, For us NICU nurses, their recommendation of the AAP is that around 32 weeks gestation, we should start transitioning our babies from uh, developmental care type sleep positioning to a safe sleep environment so that they are well adjusted by the time that they go home. Now, That is for medically stable babies, and we know that not all 32-weekers are medically stable. Um, And we also is concerned about development. Um, Do we take away developmental tools when they still need them for safe sleep? So it's something that people are looking at and trying to figure out when is that exact um, moment where we should start transitioning. And I think it's going to vary for every baby and how they're doing, both medically and developmentally. Um, again, you know, things like not drinking and using alcohol during pregnancy or after pregnancy, making sure that the mom, she got good prenatal care um, and the baby stays up to date with immunizations, as well as us healthcare professionals. This is a huge one that the AAP talks about is we need to be well aware of this topic and do lots of education and um educate the parents over and over again, because we know that it takes multiple times of hearing something before we actually might have a um, change in habits. It has to be frustrating as a parent to be told these recommendations from the AAP, but then you walk into any store baby store, and you see all these pretty um, additions that you can add to your crib, like bumpers and fancy um, you know, fuzzy blankets and, you know, all the monitoring systems like the outlet, um, you know, and it has to be confusing. You know, they're being told one thing and then they see that there as well. So, um, you know, that's why, like you said, early education is important. So if we can catch these parents before they take their babies home and put them in their beautifully dressed cribs, but no, you don't, you don't need that. Um, it's not safe. Well, so. and I think what's really worse is the um, celebrities. You know, when you read a People magazine or any of those, you know, type of magazines, and they're saying, you know, this celebrity's having a baby, and look at their nursery, and it's all decked out, and there's so much stuff in that crib, and you're like, oh no, 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 no. So um, there are national organizations that ha- their focus is on. Um, preventing sleep-related deaths in newborns that really have started taking on um, corporations. I shouldn't say taking on, but working with them. And Target was one of the actual first 
Are we allowed to mention name brands? Yes. Who doesn't love Target? <laughs> Maybe they'll give us a kickback now. Yeah. But like Target was one of the first places that started taking all that stuff out of the cribs and on display. And I love that. You know, when, I, when I worked on the Franklin County, Ohio, um, Columbus Health Department, Safe Sleep, task force years ago, back almost 20 years ago, and we tried to convince the baby stores in Columbus, please don't do this. You're you're contributing to an issue. And they're like, nope, we have to do what corporate tells us, which is true. But then, you know, working with the national companies, working with these, you know, big box stores, Target was one of the first ones that stepped up and said, we're going to start doing this and others have slowly started doing it, but you're right. You can still go into other big box baby stores and find all kinds of stuff. And they truly don't care. They, they, they look at you and they go, well, we're doing what corporate tells us to do. And corporate's telling them what sells, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's all a bottom line, but you know, and people is like, well, okay, I won't put a, a, a bumper pad in that is quilted but I'm going to I don't want my baby to get their arm or leg stuck between the rails um, because they could hurt themselves well actually they're not going so they're going to put up like a mesh bumper well the problem with the mesh bumpers is the babies can still get tangled up in it and babies have gotten tangled up in them um, causing a risk for death and so there no type of bumper pad is safe and in reality, no baby has ever died from having their arm or leg stuck between the rails of a crib. It hasn't happened. And their bones don't break that easily. What are they going to do? They're going to cry. And mommy or daddy has to get up and reposition them. Exactly. And, and I, I also want to touch on the premature baby transition um, to safe sleep. Because I, I think that's a, a very controversial topic and a, and a lot of NICUs. And you said what is considered med- medically stable. Um, and 32-weekers, you know, you could have um, a small for gestational aged 32-weeker that's a lot smaller than, you know, a 32-weeker that could be um, LGA. So that it is kind of a slippery slope as to what you want to consider um, medically stable. So... Do you have um, any recommendations for what what we could maybe agree upon um, as what what you would think would be considered medically stable, where we could start introducing some of these safe sleep practices and slowly start taking away those developmental aids? So um, the AAP has tried to deal with the deal with this subject, Jill, um, and they, they, they're, you know, medical experts are having trouble determining what is medically stable. Um, and so they, I think their paper was just published in the last year or two, and I can't remember the exact date, but um, actually Jay Green Goldsmith, I think it was Jay Goldsmith spoke at our conference virtually last year and he touched on this a little bit and hopefully that um, recording will still uh, at some point be available in our NAN, oops, sorry, NAN store um, for people to listen to. But, you know, we're looking at things like oxygen, you know, are they on oxygen or not on oxygen? Um, Obviously if you're intubated or on CPAP, you're not medically stable. Um, 
some babies that are on nasal cannulas, low flow, they're they're pretty much, and they're getting ready to go home. If they're going home with that nasal cannula, then they really are more or less medically stable. I think what I've learned from our um, OTPT people at Nationwide Children's where I work, and they're very active with our Safe Sleep Committee, is the developmental care aspect of it. That majority of 32-weekers are not, even a LGA, um, even an SGA 32-week, you know, like one that might be a growth retarded, um, but a little bit more mature, um, are not developmentally ready to lay flat on their back with no boundaries around them. So what you have to look at is what can we start removing away from our developmental tools? Because many times you're going to have like a Freddie the Frog to help with um, keeping the head center or positioning them using Freddie the Frog. Um, though Freddie should never be on the chest wall because Freddie's almost a pound. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen Freddie on a chest wall in my life propping a pacifier in place. And as I tell them, that's equivalent to my 60-pound dog laying on my chest wall at nighttime, right? You know, it's like, oh. okay, this is really cute for about 60 seconds. And it's <laughs> like, I can't breathe. Off you go. Um, so, yeah. So, you, taking away your developmental tools one piece at a time and how do they tolerate that? You know, the bendy bumpers or the little snuggle-ups, you know, maybe just unwrapping them and having it distill the you know, the snuggle up in there but not tightly in there and they get used to that and then you know we can start you know weaning them out of the things that should be done slowly and if you have occupational therapists and developmental um, people in your unit it's great to partner with them to help you determine when is that baby going to be developmentally stable I know that our head of um, OTPT is um, working on some research looking at that, developing like a rubric to help determine by looking at certain aspects, is this baby developmentally ready? And it's um, not only developmentally, but she takes into the respiratory support also that 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 baby might be getting. Um, And then that helps determine, do they need all their developmental tools or do they need just some of them? Or can they be in a totally safe sleep environment? I love the aspect of, of using other disciplines and, and assisting with that and working together. And they're a great source for education for parents, too. Yes. Um, you know, how many parents have asked you, where do I buy those Freddy Frogs? Or where can I get those bendy bumpers? And it's like, no, you can't get their, their developmental tools for, for a hospital use only. And, you know, I see the OT people working really closely with parents and teaching them ways to offer containment, not just, you know, with their hands and ways to soothe their baby and not having to use these developmental uh, hospital tools that that we have. So, And I think it's really important, like you said, they're hospital only. And I, my great niece was born and had some issues um, that required her to be in the hospital for about five weeks um, after birth. And when I flew up to where they live, and met them at the hospital to go home because she had some medical needs at home. So I went and spent the first week with them just to make sure that they transitioned and that everybody was cool. They'd asked me to come, so I went. But there was like four bendy bumpers and Freddie the Frogs and Snuggle Ups. And I'm like, what are these? And, you know, the only thing I let her keep, because I literally took them and put them in a garbage bag. And she's like, we paid for those. And I said, yes, and they're hospital use only. 
they're unsafe at home. And the only thing we're going to keep is the um, really, there's a name for it, but it's those mattresses that you can mold. They're really super uh, soft because yeah. uh-huh. she had a defect in her spine that hadn't been repaired yet. So she needed that. So she didn't get a breakdown on her back. Um, but that's the only thing I let them keep. <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, the the hospital was, you know, they let that pa- those parents take them home. And if they're not lucky to have an advocate at home to tell them what's safe and what's not safe, mm-hmm. they would continue using that. Correct. Uh, so it's know, our job to make sure yep. that they don't take them home. Uh-huh. And they obviously modeled what the nurses were doing mm-hmm. um, while they were there. So, And that's know. why it's really important for us to role model safe sleep. Because parents do try to replicate what they see at home. And it's also important that we give that baby enough time in the hospital to acclimate to safe sleep. Because if they don't, they're going to fuss. And then the parents are going to do look for anything around the house to actually replicate what they saw us doing. You know, they'll put blankets underneath a mattress in order to put the head of the bed up. You know, they'll, you know, they'll do all kinds of things just to try to replicate what they saw being done at the hospital. So we need back on the sleep. They're on their backs, flat surface, no head of the bed. Head of bed does more harm than anything. Even if you reflux it, it doesn't help you. Nan has released their newborn safe sleep sleep guidelines, which are the only clinical practice guidelines that address challenges um, and also provides recommendations um, for nurses trying to implement um, safe sleep practices on their units. Can you go into some of those guidelines that Nan created? Yeah, I'd love to, Jill. Um, Yeah, so in 2019, December 2019, the guidelines came out And um, we did them because there was such a need, um, nurses asking, how do we do safe sleep in the NICUs? When do we do safe sleep in the NICU? You know, what is safe sleep? So we put together a group of authors um, that that were experts and had a high interest in this to work on developing a guideline. And the guideline itself um, actually talks a little bit of the history of safe sleep, much more in depth than what I was able to share with you tonight, and sleep-related deaths and the AAP guidelines. And then we look into controversies related to safe sleep because there are controversies like bed sharing, huge group of people out there that feel that parents should breast a bed share. Um, and then breastfeeding and skin to skin, how does that fit in with um, safe sleep? Um, a lot of people believe that babies shouldn't be on their backs because they're, if they vomit, they're going to choke and die. And so we have a section that talks about anatomy and why babies don't choke on their vomitus when they lay on their back. They're more likely to choke on their vomitus when they're on their bellies because now the airway's below the esophagus versus vice versa. And good old gravity has an effect on that. Um, we talk about GER and um, head of bed and why it's not recommended. Um, and then a little bit about medical stability and developmental readiness. We also discuss things like barriers of implementing it in your hospital because it is, there are lots of barriers. You're going to run into people who say, oh, we don't need to do that. My All my babies slept on their bellies and they all did fine. And of course, my answer to that when people say that to me is, you were very lucky because not all babies, all babies do fine when they sleep on their bellies. So we talk about nursing healthcare, how to deal with those um, messaging and advice and how to do clinical practice. Um, how to work with parents. Um, there, we admit that there's no clear guidelines of how to implement it in the hospital at this point. But looking at, you know, people are looking at 
the when, the whys, and hows, the best time to do it. Um, and then we actually give um, some recommendations for um, the newborn nursery, the special care nursery, the level three and four intensive care nurseries, because they're all going to be a little bit different, the recommendations of how to do it. Um, the bottom line, though, is lots of education, as you said before in this podcast, um, with the parents so that they understand what is um, doing, what is being done. Um, and we also, last but not least, not only the NICUs, but we talk a little bit about the cardiac ICUs because some of the large children's hospitals have newborns in their cardiac and um, surgical ICUs. Some There's babies that are in the PICU that are under a year of age and safe sleep should be role modeled when they're stable in the um, PICUs and then up on the general hospital pediatric floors. So the guideline is good for that postpartum well baby nursery all the way up to general pediatric floors um, for babies that are nearing one year of age. That's a great range because oftentimes NICU nurses that are in children's hospital find themselves being floated to a pediatric a PICU or a pediatric med surge floor, and they, they're seeing these babies not following safe sleep guidelines. Mm-hmm. And, you know, h- how much more confusing is that to a parent? They hear in the NICU this, and then in the PICU, even if they were transferred from a NICU to a PICU, because maybe they're older and they, they need a higher level of care or, or whatever, um, you know, they were treated one way in the NICU and then we're doing something differently in the PICU. So that's a big help that NAN includes that in their guidelines. Yes. Um, So, you know, because our goal is to get babies through that first year of life or more because, you know, they're the future of our country, our world is our babies. Um, And we really do make a big imprint um, imprint on them. Um, I think what's important is that people can buy the NAN guideline in the NAN bookstore at www.nan.org. And then you go to the bookstore. And what else is just new out is that people who attended the conference got um, a set of safe sleep cards, um, like pocket cards that help you as a bedside nurse to talk to parents about the topic. It has some great graphics in it. It especially has that graphic about where the airway is located when a baby's on their belly versus um, on their backs in relationship to the esophagus. And those are also available in the NAN bookstore for people to purchase. And of course, NAN members get discounts versus non-NAN members. And hopefully you listen to this podcast and, and want to investigate all of this further and maybe implement safe sleep practices on, on your unit. Um, those cards are excellent um, way to educate parents maybe when they're sitting there doing skin to skin. Hey, you know, why don't, why don't you read a little bit about safe sleep and we can go over it. Um, you have a captive audience, so take that time to educate the, the parents at, you know, when they're visiting. Correct. So this issue goes beyond the NICU doors. So what else can we do as NICU nurses beyond the NICU to help with this problem um, and this issue of sudden infant death and suicides that are happening in our communities? So that's a great question, Jill, because um, there are things that we can do. Um, I've been very active in my um, community at the um, county level as well as within the hospital system. So there, you can do things in the NICU, but you also can get active, um, should be a hospital-wide initiative so that all babies under one year of age are um, 
and safe sleep environments in your hospital, and then looking at what community activities are there. You know, we're nurses, whether we're in the hospital or we're at home, at the grocery store, at church, we're, we always have our nurse's hat on. Um, so educating our friends and our families, um, our neighbors, um, when they ha- are pregnant, you know, just say, hey, you know, congratulations, you're pregnant. Do you know about safe sleep? You know, do you know, you know, buying for baby gifts, sleep sacks, you know, um, when people get a bunch of toys, you know, I, I love telling parents, go find like one of those um, fishing type nets, colorful fishing nets and go into the corner of the room and pin it up on the wall and then stick all the stuffed toys up in there. That's where the toys belong until the child is old enough that they want and can have a stuffed bear or dolphin or whatever their favorite stuffed toy is in bed with them after one year of age. Um, But, you know, it's really out there advocating for infants um, because the United States has one of the worst infant mortality rates when you look at other developed countries. Um, And we need to do something about it. I know in Ohio at one point, you know, we were looking at several kindergarten classes per year of babies dying. And I think when you start looking at, you know, you go, well, those numbers don't seem that high, but when you start breaking it down to, well, that's three kindergarten classes a year that died. That's a lot. That is like, whoa, that's a lot of babies that just died, you know, because the average kindergarten kid, you know, is about 20, 25 kids. You know, so you're looking at like around 75 kids in a state at one time can die, you know, and who, who could those children have been? What good could, what, what could they done to make this world a better place? It's all lost potential. So we want our babies to grow up. And as I tell people, I said, I want them to grow up so they can take over my job (laughs) when I'm ready to retire. (laughs) And then maybe we'll have that answer of what we can do with medically stable babies in the NICU at 32 weeks by then. And maybe by then they'll have, maybe they'll figure out the answer of how to do this. And those babies. Yeah. So this, this goes beyond just inside the NICU doors. It's inside your hospital. If your hospital doesn't have a safe sleep committee, start one. That's what I did. You know, people came up to me and go, we we got babies dying. It was a countywide um, conference, and they came up to me from my work, and they said, why aren't we doing something at Children's? I said, okay, I'll do it. So I started the Safe Sleep Committee, and then it slowly evolved into this huge um, thing that it is now. But it started out grassroots with several nurses, and then we found a physician champion, and it just slowly grew to the point where the upper beings at children said, okay, we need to take this on because it is a hor- it, it's a, it's a leading cause of infant mortality for great, those babies greater than one month to one year of age in Franklin County, Ohio at the time that it went to this huge hospital wide um, program in 2015. Wow. So that shows you the power of, of nurses and, and how mm-hmm. much advocacy and effect that we have um, on patients, families, and the community. Yeah. And doing quality improvement work. You know, what can we do? You know, what works, what doesn't work? You know, so doing little PDSA cycles in your unit to figure out how do we get people to take blankets out of the bed? Oh, that's a challenge. That's another podcast all in of itself. Um, You know, how do we implement this um, and how people have successfully done that on on their units? Change is hard, um, but I think, 
you know, if you're armed with the knowledge and the education, it's, it's a powerful tool um, and people need to be held accountable. Yes. And I've always, change is not hard. It's the transition that is hard. So it's that transitioning from what you've been doing to what you should be doing. And the impact that that could have. Mm-hmm. You, you could be saving a life, many lives. Unfortunately, we don't know. You know, we, we don't, you know, because a lot of times we don't even know. Well, I guess most of the time when a baby dies recently out of the NICU, most of us end up knowing um, about it. But, you know, if they've been out for any length of time and they weren't in your unit that long, you might not know, ever know no. that something went wrong. I know that's one thing that they were looking at county level where I live, that they were um, looking at how do we get, understand who these babies were and did they ever have an interaction with nationwide children's. Um, so, you know, and we, we have been able to do a little bit of that um, to figure out. And then that's why we took it from just the NICUs out to the clinics and all the um, outpatient care centers so that the education is continuous no matter where they are touched. Even in the emergency room, they get the same education. Oh, that's great. That's great. It's the same, same all around. Yep. So you know that you can control what information that they're getting. Yeah, you graduate from the NICU and you come back to the ED a few years, days later. <laughs> you get the same education. Repetition, that's great. Yeah, That's what they need. Well, thank you, Gail, so much for joining us today. Um, let's hope all the NICU nurses listening and other nurses listening will take these recommendations and start this education well before discharge and remember that these parents and the families are looking at you and they're looking at you as role models and they're very easily influenced. So education is key. And we thank you so much for sharing your expertise with all of us and letting us know all of these amazing resources that are available through NAN for slave sleep practices and parent education. But thank you so much. You're welcome, and thank you for having me, Jill. I totally enjoyed our conversation tonight. Make sure you never miss an episode of NANCAST by subscribing now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks for your support and letting us into your ears. Have a great day.